Welcome to the Eye of the Swarm podcast, and along with Elliot Swear, our engineer, and the Big Sound Matt Johnson. I'm John Garver, and uh, had a chance to look at numbers this week, and over 100 listeners now for our first four episodes of the Eye of the Swarms. So, you know, thanks to everybody who's tuning us in. It's I, I, better than I thought it was going to be, to be honest with you, the, the number of listeners we have. I'm pretty excited about where we've gone so far in the first four episodes. Yeah, I don't know if I would classify what we're doing as growing exponentially, but we're moving in the right direction. I'll, was, just, no, I'll just say that. It's incremental, and that's, yes. you know, we're getting a, a few more listens every single episode, so this is uh, this has been a good thing. And I, I talked with Joey Cummings here before coming over, and he says, you know, I, I listen to every single one. It's fun. When do I get to be on? So I think uh, at some point here we'll have both him and Ryan Peterson on, and they can talk about how good they've been playing, how well they've been playing. Bad full <laughs> pawn, the grammar right there. The How well they've been playing of late and how they're playing their best golf that they've played in their time here at UW-Spear. And now they have to wait eight months before they can do it again in the Nationals after winning the conference championship. It still feels so weird. I mean, we've, we've gone through the explanations, we, we've gotten the explanations, and we understand it. It just feels strange. Yeah. It'll always feel weird. It's I don't, going to. Yeah, I don't think there's ever going to be a time where I'm going to say, yeah, naturally, we're going to go play golf in the spring at the NCAA championships. Right. You know, after we haven't played in seven months. Seven months. Yeah. yeah. You know, it just doesn't feel right. But, you know, we'll talk more about them, of course, winning the conference title for the second straight year. Of course, that's kind of what we're leading into here. Yeah, but, we'll, uh, we'll jump into that. But actually, I wanted to touch on something else first before we get into our little Yellow Jacket roundup of everything from the last week. But some uh, potentially... Collegiate sport shaking news out of St. Paul last week with St. Thomas getting the invite into the Summit League. So basically, after being unceremoniously, if that's what you want to say, uh, asked to leave the MIAC after being a member for 100 years, they have the opportunity to skip Division Two entirely and move to Division One. That's that's unprecedented. It is. And, uh, you know, if they were going to go with Division One, Summit League is definitely the route for them to go. Um, they're... Probably, and I was talking about this with somebody uh, when the news was announced, um, the other viable probably locations for them, if they were going to go D1 and stay in a conference, in a smaller tier conference, would have been, in my mind, either the Big Sky or the Horizon League. Right. Um, and they don't really fit geographically with either one of those. Right. Um, they're too far east for the Big Sky, and they're probably a little bit too far west for the Horizon. Yep. Although that would be that would be easier than the Big Sky. Yes. Um. You know, so the that summit- was kind of where I thought they were going to go was going to be the Horizon League. To be honest, I thought okay. that would be the one. So, well, they—I mean—they would fit that profile better, right? Um, than they would the Big Sky. The Big Sky is very far west. I mean, in, in terms of mileage, the, right. the travel would be difficult for them. Um, but the summit—they're right in the middle of the roadhouse of where the summit teams are located, and so it, it's a—it's a geographically, it's a good match for them because their road trips are not going to be real difficult if they take the invite. Right. You know, the, the interesting thing is going to be for me, and I can ask you this because you're the hockey guy here, hockey is the wild card here for them. Yep. And so this is one of those situations where, because I'd be honest with you, I thought they were going to be one of those schools that was going to make a transition go to the NSIC because they also fit that profile. Yep. Um, and then that hockey was going to have to move up to Division One, of course. Right. Um, but hockey being the wild card – uh, what do you think if they decide to go Summit, where would they go? Would they go independent, or would they try to jump into one of the leagues, or what do you think would happen there? You know, I, I, I don't know. I, I okay. really don't know. I mean, it, you, they're not a fit for the NCHC. 
they're not a fit for the Big Ten, obviously. Right. Which kind of leaves you with the WCHA. Again, these, I don't have insider info. I don't know anything that's right. going on. This is just my observations of it. It leaves you the WCHA, but that is a league in flux right now, too, because you had seven schools, seven schools said, who yeah. said, we're out. Yep. We This doesn't have the commitment that we want institutionally yeah. that we are looking for. We're out. We're going to go form our own thing. And it leaves basically three schools, the two Alaska schools who have their own problems with funding and everything going Ugh. on up there right now. Just like a nightmare. Yeah. You've got those two, and then you've got... Alabama Huntsville, another logistical nightmare. Right, and so I I don't know where that leaves a school like St. Thomas, and and they the WCHA may not exist. Right, when those schools decide to leave, do they leave and still call themselves the WCHA? Do they form the, a different league? Do they reincarnate the CCHA? Because you've got CCHA members right. that were in the WCHA. So it's, it's kind of a mess that way. But where does St. Thomas go? I have no idea. Well, and there's another wild card in there, too, and that's Arizona State, who have just come in, right. and they're trying to build their program. And they're an independent as well, and, you know, where do they fit? Yeah. I mean, do they become the eighth in that league with the seven leaving the WCHA? I don't know. Do they try to find their way into the NCHC? That doesn't really fit the NCHC footprint very well. I don't know. When all those schools leave the WCHA, do schools like Miami and Western Michigan go, that fits our footprint better than the NCHC does? We're going to go that way. It's going to be fascinating to see where, where all this goes with St. Thomas. And it also, you know, and the other piece for St. Thomas, you got to look facility wise. Yeah. You know, they, they play in a relatively new facility. But depending on what league they go in, is that going to work for them? Yeah. They might have to build a whole new arena somewhere. Are they somewhere. building a new yeah. facility somewhere? Are they going to put a bunch of money into the Coliseum on the state fairgrounds and try to make that their home ice? It's really, really going to be interesting from a hockey standpoint to see where they go. Yeah. it's. I mean, the transition is, I think, they can make it in the other sports a little bit more readily at this particular point in time, especially in that league. Right. Um, I think that, you know, right now I don't think that they would be necessarily a competitive factor right, right away in right. that league. Um, whereas, As, I, Especially, I think, in, in the footballs and basketballs. Right, I, yeah. I, you're gonna They're going to take some lumps at that yeah. level, I would think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we were talking – I was talking about this yesterday with some UMD folks, and they feel like they could come in and be a factor in the NSIC right now mm-hmm. with what they have um, because they have – arguably better facilities in a lot of ways than a lot of the NSIC schools right now. Mm-hmm. And their teams would be able to compete yep. right now in the NSIC. Um, but making that jump to... It's huge. Yeah, that's a huge jump. It's a huge jump. Yeah, I mean, going up to full-fledged Division One, right, would be... Granted, I mean, it's not Power 5 conference, but it right. is, yeah. I mean, you're but still talking about full-fledged a, Division 1. That's a big jump. Yeah, I mean, the Summit League is full-fledged Division 1, and there are some competitive teams... Not just in the Summit League, but are pretty decent that they put up good results when they play teams from Power Five schools too in that league. Right. You know, depending on what the sport is. So, boy, yeah, that's a that's something of a conundrum. You know, uh, I don't want to say conundrum wrapped in an enigma like some people say, but um, it it it's I don't know how that's going to play out. It's going to be really interesting to watch how it does. Yeah, and I gonna, was almost I was I was almost 
at a certain level, I thought for sure they would spend at least two or three years in the NSIC or somewhere like that. Right. Before they made a full-fledged jump. So will this speed along the process? I guess we'll find out. Well, it's going to be – there's obviously some NCAA rings that they're going to have to jump through. and Or hoops, I guess is probably the correct word, that they're going to have to jump through. But how the NCAA handles this is going to be really interesting because it could set a precedent for other schools to go, okay, now if we've got the the finances to do this, let's make the jump. Let's give it a try. Right. So I think yeah. it's going to be really interesting to see on the NCAA side how they handle this too. Yeah. I mean, there's going yeah, – obviously, anytime a school moves up, there are certain things that you – there are certain benchmarks you must you know, meet in order to – First of all, make it up there because you got the provisional membership, which comes into play, and then you know the full fledged membership, which will come later because it's almost like a probationary period. Yeah, there's going to have to. Yeah, be, you know, and there's obviously going to be. What is their scholarship allotment going to be? Right. Yeah. You know, are they going to have a full allotment of scholarships right away? Is that something that's going to come later on? Is there funding that they're going to have to build on their end? Right. In order to have a full allotment of scholarships. Well, especially on the football side of it. Right. I mean, you're talking, I don't know what the FCS's uh, scholarship re- uh, requirements are. Full-fledged Division One FBS, you know, to be specific. Right. Uh, it's 85 scholarships, and then you have a series of walk-ons, and I think there might be even a couple of partials, but you get 85 fulls. Right. I can't imagine that St. Thomas, if, if that is the case also at FCS, which I don't think it is, but it might be if... I, think I it, imagine it's a smaller number. Yeah, I would guess it's probably in the 50 to 60 range. But Even the, still. Yeah, but still. I mean, you're talking about you know full rides for these guys, and that's a lot of money to put in. Right. I mean, you know they, they do well with their football program. I mean, their stadium is already either the same size or bigger than Miloski Stadium where UMD plays. Mm-hmm. But you're talking about now putting in serious money because, I mean, Division II scholarships are nowhere close right. to what Division I, Division I scholarships are, even partials. Yep. So where's that money going to come from? I'm not doubting St. Thomas can do it. Right. We know their endowment is huge, and they have a very generous alumni base. Yep. But, again, I I don't know. I don't know enough about the finances. Um, you know, their enrollment is, what, between 7 and 8, isn't it? Something, yeah, yeah. I believe so. I yeah, don't know I've, the exact number, but I think that sounds about right. Yeah. I mean, and, and the tuition is high, as we know. I mean, St. Thomas is a private school. Right. Which also factors into this. Um, but, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that I, – I, It'll be fascinating to see what the developments are. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to watch, and we'll keep you posted. We'll follow that on our end as well, and it'll be a, a talker for sure as as we navigate through all that. I want to stay in the Twin Cities for a, a brief moment and uh, move to the professional ranks as the Twins were unceremoniously bounced from the postseason once again by the New York Yankees, and it it brings to it brings to the forefront that question: Is Minnesota the most tortured fan base in professional sports i i felt bad because i actually um i picked the yankees in four i told everyone that if the twins won a game it would be gravy and i gave them too much credit as it turns out because they lost all three yeah weren't really competitive to any of them um but uh, there was a sequence in the game last night that really kind of encapsulated Is this the second it. inning yes <laughs> and then top of the third um and that's kind of where i just said well well enough. it was it was one of those things where to win in october i mean then you hear about it all the time it's you know we gotta we gotta you know we gotta execute with two outs we gotta get that guy in from third with two outs you know with, with runners in scoring position we gotta get him in. The Twins loaded the bases with nobody out. They had two strikeouts and a pop up. Yep. You know I mean with the heart of the lineup up. You know and and I said that's your game. Yeah, but then you fast forward to the top of the next inning. Yep. Right and, and at that point lead the off Twins, double lead off double move the runner over move the runners out. 
they get the they get the second out right on yep. the strikeout, and you think everything's good. What does the next guy do? Singles to left, yep. drives in that guy from third with yep. two with with two outs, and instead of having one nothing, now it's still two nothing. Yep. And that encapsulates it. Teams like the Yankees, they execute. Yep. Teams like the Twins, they don't execute, and that's why they don't win. No, you don't. You, you don't like. I mean, they, they had. I don't know the exact number, but I want to say it was near forty strikeouts. Yeah, in I the three game series, that's incredible. And a lot of them were called. Like a lot of them were pitches that were over the meat of the plate. Right. Yeah. And, and you've you've got guys. Miguel Sano, I think, was one for eleven in the series. Max Kepler was zero for ten in the series. You know, these are your guys. Yeah, these guys have carried you all year. They just they didn't show. Ari Rosario, I think, went two for ten at one point. I don't know right. what he ended up with, I but mean, it's, you know, it's incredible. Nelson Cruz took a called third strike yesterday in the last out. I mean, that is a guy who's been pounding that pitch all year long. Yep. And he let it go by. Yep. And that is a mindset issue for me. But it, yeah, yeah. You're, I mean, right. that that's that's not locking in and worrying too much about. Oh my God, it's the Yankees, and we're we're down and. Oh my gosh, we're playing you know with the playoffs and all the lights are on and the in in the stadium is packed and yep. this is national TV and blah blah blah. Teams like the Yankees, teams like the Dodgers, teams like the Astros. They embrace those moments and they say, "So what? Yep. We're out here to get a job done. Put your head down and do it." Yep. Teams like the Twins don't do that. They look around and get overwhelmed with the situation. Which is, it just boggles my mind. And they've done it 16 straight times now. 16 straight. And that's, and that's kind of why I, I circle back, and I'm stealing this from Bruce Siski and something that I saw on Twitter, because the level of torture Minnesota fans have gone through is incredible. Yeah. If you look at the Timberwolves in 30 years of existence. Oh, my gosh. Have been to the conference final one time. Yeah. And have missed the playoffs more than they've made it. In the NHL, you have two trips to the Stanley Cup finals. Both of them from a team that's in here anymore. That has been gone. Yeah, since the early 1990s. So you you and went pretty closely the, after that the appearance. State of hockey, right? You've had two trips to the Stanley Cup final in 52 years, and the most recent was 1991. Yep, and then they left like in '93. I want to say they left after the '93 season. Yeah, so you've got that in the so-called state of hockey. The Twins haven't won a postseason series since 2002. I, I still used a comb the last time they won a postseason game, and that was 2004. <laughs> it, you know, I sort of used a comb. I mean, it was it, it was inevitable. The trend was, happening. was happening, but we, I, I still used a comb. But that was 2004. They haven't they, their last World Series win was 1991, right. so 28 years ago, and now they have lost 16 straight in the postseason. The Vikings haven't been to a Super Bowl in 42 years. Exactly. I mean, th- this is. This is a long. This drought. is unprecedented torture, and that's why I asked the question: Is it the most tortured fan base in sports? I, I, I would put it right up there. I think that for people who are interested in all sports, I think the links have provided a bit of a of of, of a little bit of a buffer. Yeah, there. a little bit of a buffer because what's funny about them is they didn't win just one or two or three; they won four. Right, and so in they what, were, in what six years? Yeah, <laughs> so it, with the links, it was a dynasty. But then none of the other Minnesota teams, you know, and, and people can poo-poo the links all they want, but the bottom line is they were a dynasty. Yes. You know, four and six years, and they could have won, honestly, probably all six of those years. Right. And on the other side of the equation, we got one teams of those that, years they lost in the final as well. Yeah, so. exactly. I yeah. mean, they could have legitimately won five out of six. And go on the other side of the equation, and the men's teams are just horrific. Right. And it, 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 Or their their level of play in the, in the postseason has been horrific. Right. I mean, the Vikings – since I've lived in the Twin Ports, 
lost in what year was that? I guess it would be 08. Was that well, the, I mean, you can go back. Or 12. Was, what year was that? Since they, were, since they were in the Super Bowl, okay, yeah, which was 1977. They've lost five title games since, I, since they last yeah, won the Super Bowl. And, yeah, yeah, Darren yeah. Nelson dropped the pass in the end, or in outside the goal line, which I'm not sure he would have gotten the end zone anyway. That was against Washington. Right. But, okay, I'll give you that one, which would have won the game for them. In the 98 season, 15-1, and one, Gary Anderson. I was in college at that time. Misses the and kick. so are you, I know. Yep, yep, misses the kick. His only miss of the year against Atlanta in the title game. 0-1, you had 41 donut. Yep. Against the Giants. Barely got off the They bus. were down 17 to nothing before they even had their first first down of that game. Was it you, 12? Was that the year I'm well, thinking of? You had uh, 2009 when Favre oh, that's was here. Yeah. And Sorry, I'm getting all my years Bounty Gates against New Orleans where he inexplicably... I never. There's the timeout followed by 12 men in the huddle where they back him up 10, and then the interception. The interception and that uh, throwing across I his will, body. I will say this about that play, because I was sitting at the Blackwoods Bar in Duluth when he made that throw, and I remember thinking to myself, he had a lane. He could have run for that first down. But could he have run? You saw the pictures of the ankle afterward. I mean, yeah, he had a, I mean, a grapefruit that was purple growing out his ankle at that time. So but could no, he have instead, run for it? I don't know. Instead, he's running full speed toward the sideline, and like I said, throws across his body, trying which, to force it to Sidney Rice. Which <laughs> live by the sword, die by the sword, sort of thing. Yeah, because exactly. It, you know, if he completes that pass, everyone's like, "Wow, that's the greatest play in Vikings history." But it gets picked off, and that's what Brett Favre did. Yep. So, and, and okay, that happens. Because I was, I was thinking that time, if you just because Adrian Peterson also fumbled twice in that game. Three was, times. Was it three times yes. in that game? Okay. Get I mean, right, that was three. the game. That was the, <laughs> right, that was the four turnover game. Yes. I was thinking because Lo- Ryan Longwell, who was one of the most clutch kickers in NFL history, was yep. in our back pocket. Yep. He was getting ready to kick the winning field goal. But when you have 12 men in the huddle all of a sudden, that backs you just on the right. long fringe of his range, and you're not sure that's going to be good. Right. So then there was that game, and then obviously 2017. Which was the meltdown which, in Philly. Yes. Yeah, and you know that game was especially difficult, I think, for some people. Yep. Not so much for those of us like you and I who have been through all five of these. Yeah. Um, I almost, because I almost expected it to happen. Yeah, well, because they started out so well, right? right? They score right away. Um, I think it was Adam Thielen scored, uh, scored the first touchdown. Great first drive. Yeah, took a pass from Case Keenum and scores a touchdown on a nice throw. Yep. And you're like, okay, we're off and rolling. 37 straight points come barreling like, the other way at you. I was in Indianapolis <laughs> that day for the NCAA convention. I was flying home, so I get on the plane in Indy. We're up 7 nothing. I land in Chicago. I get off, and I'm like, you got to be kidding me. Right. Yeah. So well, it was 24-7. Like, what happened in that hour I was in the air? Right. Well, and it's see it, what's happened. I think from all of these failures with all these teams, you and I are, are '80s kids, so we remember '87. We remember '91 when the Twins won both World Series, and those were years where you honestly felt like, even though I was, I think in '87 I would have been 11 or 12, and in '91 I was in freshman in high school. But each of those times that they won those series, I remember thinking to myself, "This team is going to win." You had confidence in them that they were going to win. Because in 87, they blew out the Tigers in the ALCS. Yep. In 91, they blew out, I think it was the Blue Jays. Yeah. In the ALCS. And you just felt like, okay, this team is not going to lose. Right. They they know what it takes. They have it. And there was something about that core of players, because the core was about the same. Yep. On both those teams. Yep. Um, You just knew they were going to find a way to get it done. Now you look at these... Twins teams and these Vikings teams and the Wild. They're going to find a way it, to not get it done. Yeah, and the Timberwolves, and you just know they're not going to get it done. Right. You know, and, and and no matter how they try to spin it, I always come back down to, well, get it done then. You know, don't tell me about 
how great this free agent is or how much money you're going to spend right. or you know you know we've we've upgraded at this spot or we've upgraded at that spot or this is our year because we've been wa- watching just go and get it done yep. i don't want to hear any more of this you know any of this making promises we're going to be we're going to be really good you know and that's why i always i'm really hesitant to talk about super bowl with the vikings because right. the last one they went to i was 3 months old and i'm going to be i was 3 years old yeah and i'm going to be now 43 in about a month here yeah that's so, that's my problem. Yeah, no, I'm I'm with you on that. So, anyway, that's I, my. I rant. think we pretty much just decided yes, we are, <laughs> we are the most tortured fan base. You know, all apologies to Cleveland, but you got your title a couple of years ago with LeBron. So I. Well, did I, you see the ESPN and, and Philadelphia's out on that now too? So I think it's basically Minnesota and nobody else. Did you see the graphic that they had? No, and the graphic that ESPN put up. It's the most consecutive professional seasons in the major four sports. They had to clarify that seasons straight without having won anything. Two of the top three are Milwaukee and Minneapolis. Of course. And guess who had their streak just recently broken? It was Toronto. Sure. And that was, they were both at 73, Milwaukee and Minneapolis. Minneapolis is by far the the leader at 103 seasons (laughs) since the last title appearance. That doesn't even count like winning it. Right. But the last title appearance I think was 91 anyway, and that was when the Twins won it. Yeah. So you're talking about all those years, you know, and now some of it with Milwaukee, not enough pro teams. Yeah. (laughs) So like right. I mean, they, only they have, have the Bucks two. and they have the Brewers and yeah. that's it. You only have two. So. Yeah. So they're gonna. It's gonna take them longer. Yeah, anyway. They haven't won anything since Lou Alcindor was there. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, overall long right. length. Uh, Milwaukee's had a longer right. drought, but like Minneapolis just one shot to the jaw after yeah. another. I think they should clarify that to say markets that have teams in all four of the major leagues, right? Because that's what Minneapolis is. Yeah. After I, you know, with that being the criteria, I don't even know how far ahead we are. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't even. And now hope springs eternal with Minnesota United, who now is in the right. MLS playoffs. Yep. <laughs> so, you know, we can we can say okay, well, let's see how they do. You know, they're even they're gonna, they're the higher seed even. Right. So we'll see how they do if you know in their game, but uh, it's torture. Yeah, I, it's torture. I, you know, I not now. I mean, is that going to become now a new thing too, or is United going to follow the? I don't think anybody expected United to be this good, right? But that uh, <laughs> you know, it's but now they're in the playoffs, and we'll see. I guess springs hope springs eternal with oh, the loons. I don't know, <laughs> you know. Unbelievable! Like I'm getting more depressed now just talking about. So let's move on. Let's talk about winners. Okay, let's do that. Let's talk about the winners. The Yellow Jacket men's golf team repeating as UMAC champions after a. I get. I don't want to say crushing performance that they put on, but I mean when all five. Players on your crew end up on the all-conference team. You get coach of the year, you get rookie of the year, you get the medalist, and you get the conference title. That's pretty dominating. Clean sweep Yep, for the for the guys. Yeah, they had a score of 9-10 over three days at the uh, UMAC Conference Championships, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday at Pebble Creek Golf Club in Becker, Minnesota. UWS shooting a team score of 9-10. They were 3-4 shots ahead of second place in Alaska, so they were well up on the rest of the field. And the Jackets, as you said, Ryan Peterson. Had a really, really, really solid tournament. Yeah, he did. I mean, 72, 72, 72, yeah. even par. Yeah, I'll take that anytime. He was the individual champion, your conference champion, Ryan Peterson. 216, his overall score. Second place, like I said, for Joey Cummings, who ended up being player of the year yep. in the conference. He shot a 220, so he was four shots back. And then rounding out the top five for the Jackets, Tyler Smith, the senior. Fifth place, 233. So a, a really strong performance. And then there's that whole now we have to wait for seven months before we actually right. get to play in the Nationals. So, But in the meantime, we get to, like I said, uh, Joey Cummings, UMAC Player of the Year, Zach Jokey, UMAC Rookie of the Year, Paul Eberhardt making his second straight UMAC Coach of the Year award or winning his second straight. Third, I believe. Is it third? I believe it's his third. Okay, I, I wasn't sure on that one. 
And, of course, Cummings, Jokey, Ryan Peterson, Sam Albrecht, and Tyler Smith were all first-team all-conference. And Albrecht was also the UWS representative on the UMAC sportsmanship team. And other than that, they didn't really accomplish much last weekend. No, not at all. So congratulations to Coach Eberhardt, our guest last week on the podcast, and his charges for a good performance on the men's side. Women found it a little bit more of a struggle. Yeah, uh, St. Scholastica was clear, uh, clearly the favorite, and they did end up kind of speeding they, away they to the They ran title. away with it after the first day. They did. They did. Uh, the women finished tied for fourth at the UMAC championships, by the way. They were tied, I think, with Bethany Lutheran, I want to say. I think that's who it was. I think you're right. Yeah, and they had a score of 12-10 over the three days. St. Scholastica took the team score with a 10-57 to give you an idea how far away they were from the rest of the field. And uh, you heard Coach Eberhardt on the same podcast last week reference Hannah Johnson. Of course, she won the whole thing. Yep. Uh, 2-57 for her over the three days, so a really solid performance for her. The Yellow Jackets were led by Maddie Friedman. The freshman finished in ninth place with a 285. Elena Tulip finished in a tie for 11th. At 289, or actually that was 289. I think that was outright now. She was tied it for 10th, I think, going into that last round. In the last round, yeah, and she yeah. finished 11th. And Tulip was named first team all-conference. Friedman was honorable mention all-conference, and Shalise Snowden was named to the UMAC sportsmanship team for the ladies. It was a uh, soggy weekend in Becker. It made for some interesting playing conditions for the, the players and maybe some things that they didn't have to think about over the summer when conditions for the most part were dry. Cross-country... <laughs> they had themselves some rather wet conditions as well. I've never seen a course that wet. The pictures Coach Drexler <laughs> was sending back from down in Waverly were incredible with how much water was on that course. Well, yeah, actually my dad talking about how, uh, and this is rare for my dad to call, but he was asking me if I was still afloat when he called me last week because of all the rain we had. But uh, certainly the men and women tried to keep their heads above water down at the Dan Houston Invitational, uh, hosted by Wartburg down at the Wartburg Cross Country Course in Waverly, Iowa. This past Saturday, the men finishing in 12th place. UWS finished with a score of 346 as a team. Eddie Carlson led the way for UWS. That was an 8K course, by the way. He finished in 28-25. The women, same thing. 12th place at the Dan Houston Invitational. They had 365 points as a team. Roz Larson led the way for UWS at the time with 26 point, excuse me, 26.43.3 over the 6K course. So that's... Like you said, it was pretty darn soggy down there. Ooh. I'm surprised that the times were as good as they were, actually. Yeah, for the, it was too, because that there was a lot of water on that course, and that can't be easy to navigate at all. No, no. I mean, that's running in slop like that is, is just no fun. It's like trying to run on the beach. If anyone's right. ever tried to run on a beach of sand, that's what it feels like if it's if it's super you know drenched on the course. It used and, to be part of our preseason training was on the beach, so I get oh, it. It's a nightmare. I mean, last time I did that, I ended up with blisters that you wouldn't even believe, so... <laughs> so yeah, it was a it was a it was a sloppy afternoon down in Waverly for the men's and women's cross country teams. Sloppy afternoon last Wednesday when the uh, men's soccer team had the bridge battle. Oh my, that was yeah. I was standing right out in it. Uh, <laughs> there was there was a good contingent of UWS people there. By the way, there was probably I would guess between 100 and 150 people that were UWS supporters that were at that game. Bridge battle is always fun, but yeah, the weather conditions were not great. Right. Uh, it started to rain about midway through the first half. Then it turned into freezing rain. And then we got a little bit of snow even mixed in there that was falling on top of the hill over in Duluth. But it didn't matter as the Yellow Jackets still pulled away, or not pulled away, but pulled out a one nothing victory over St. Scholastica in really sloppy conditions. Thankfully, that's a turf field, so it wasn't as bad as it could have been. Right. But it wasn't great. Pontus Tavmark scoring his first goal of the season, the lone tally for the Yellow Jackets off an assist from Blake Perry, who seems to be factoring in on all UWS goals these days. For Tavmark, that goal coming at 58-13 off of a corner kick. Yellow Jackets holding a 17 to six edge in shots, clinging seven to one in shots on goal. Dalton Van Cano made the one save to pick up the shutout in net for the Jackets. They also played a game at Martin Luther, which was a little bit more hairy than we yeah. thought it might be. 
A little tighter than people expected, I think. Yeah, two to one and double overtime. Score wise, it was tighter. Yeah, you I mean, look well, at the shots. The stats the were incredible. Shots I, on goal, it's like how is this thing in double overtime? Yeah, I mean that was on Saturday. Well, Martin Luther's Joe Grauman scored the game's first goal, his sixth goal of the season at 101 of the first half, and then it seemed like uh, Martin Luther was pretty content to just pack it in. Play for the 1-0. Yeah, play for the 1-0. Um, and the Jackets were basically holding their own shooting gallery from there on out, if you look at the final stats. We'll get to that in just one second. Right. Uh, Yellow Jackets trailed one nothing at the half before Miguel Ocampo scored his second goal of the season, again from Blake Perry, who seems, like, like I said, to be factoring in on all Yellow Jacket goals these days. 52-19 to make it a 1-1 contest, and then we went on to um, play into double overtime for Eric Watson as the Yellow Jackets drawing a foul in the box. Got his seventh goal of the season on a penalty kick and 106 minute to give the Yellow Jackets the victory. Two to one. Shots in this one. And these th- This number is pretty incredible. I haven't seen this number in a men's game in a long time. The Yellow Jackets had 49 shots in that game. 49 to 9 were the overall shots. 20 to 3 in shots on goal. I haven't seen numbers like that in That's a really incredible. long time. Yeah. That- that's incredible. And those, those are the numbers you were referring to. And yes. I, that, that, for a hockey team, that's a ton. Yeah. For a soccer team, that's incredible. It's unheard of. <laughs> it's unheard of. So that, that field was tilted. Yeah. No doubt. Peyton Anderson and Don Van Cano split time and goal. They combined for two saves between the two of them to pick up the victory over the Knights. And then, fortunately for the Jackets, they had to turn right around after a double overtime game. Against Martin Luther, head down to Decor, Iowa, and play the number 18 ranked team in the country. And it didn't go quite as well as. No. We had hoped it would. Yellow Jackets getting shut out by the Norse for nothing. That's a really good. Yeah, I mean, we had them team. up here last year, and I think it was a one-one tie. And I recall, I think, uh, and it was they're they're really good. I remember uh, that game. I was standing on the sideline, and they were working their warm-up drills. Luther was, and I remember Coach Rich McKenna coming over and saying something to the effect of, "I wish our guys would." pass the puck this well as they pass <laughs> the soccer ball around on their short side games. Right. <laughs> he said something like that. He's like, these guys are crisp. Yeah. And, yeah, that it ended up 4 nothing. Uh Luther's Ben Keller scored twice. Actually, the Norse scored three goals in the first half, really. I think just kind of took the wind out of the Yellow Jackets' sails from the start. The Norse holding a 17-8 edge in shots, 8-3 to in shots on goal. Peyton Anderson for the Yellow Jackets took the loss. He had four saves in that contest. So that was the week that was for the men's soccer team. How about the women? Women, 2-7-2 and two now overall, 1-0 and oh in the UMAX deal. They had another game postponed. They seem to be in that uh, postponement every other week phase right now of their, yeah. of their campaign. They had another game postponed against Martin Luther, which would have been a good test for them. Martin Luther's women are not too bad. But that game got postponed due to the inclement weather, and then they had to fall, play that uh, makeup game against St. Mary's, which was postponed earlier on Monday in Winona yesterday against the Cardinals of St. Mary's. St. Mary's scoring five in the first and three in the second to make it 8 nothing. Rough day at the office for the Yellow Jackets. Morgan Philibert started and played 45 minutes, the first 45, and had six stops. Madison Gutekunst played the second and had six stops for the Yellow Jackets. So not exactly a a, a, a barrel of fun this weekend for no. Coach Austin and the Groats team. But, <laughs> again, the weather, though, is just messing with them big time. It really is. It, it's messing with everybody right now, except the volleyball team because they get to play inside. They do. So unless the roof is leaking, Yeah, you're good. They played two matches last week um, since we last talked about them. They lost to a UW Stout at Johnson Fieldhouse in Menominee on Tuesday and then lost 3-1 to one to Minnesota Morris. They were swept, by the way, by the Blue Devils, three sets to nothing. Three sets to one against Minnesota Morris. That was a game that I had on the radio. Um, and that was going to be a tough match. We figured it would be. Preseason favorite in the yeah, conference. Yeah, preseason so favorite. They returned just about one. everybody. Yeah. Uh, they lose the one middle blocker from last year. But other than that, it was the same team that the Jackets played in the UMAC tournament last year and got knocked out in five. Yep. Um, against Stout on Tuesday. 
they lost by set scores of 25-14, 25-17, 25-20. Cammie Sled has 11 kills. She hit 368, so she had a good night. Uh, Megan Holes had 21 assists. Peyton Sherber with 10 digs. And against Morris, that was an interesting match for the most part, considering that Morris was the favorite going in. Everyone, right. I think, knew that. Um, Jackets made a game out of it, though. And a few plays here and there made the difference, really, in the overall score. Jackets dropped the first set against the Cougars 25-16. They took the second set 25-20, but then lost 25-20 and 25-22 in the fi- final two sets. But pretty competitive. I mean, you and I both talked about that after the match. Uh, it was a little bit – it was a little bit – it could have gone either way yeah. if a play here or a play there had been made. So the Jackets actually played pretty well in that game. Um, Cammy Sleda, 16 kills, hit 3-33. She had a good week. Uh, Gina Barch, the freshman from Farmington, Minnesota, 14 assists, 16 digs. Megan Holes with 18 assists, and Briley Colligan had 11 digs as well against the Cougars. And that's your Yellow Jacket Roundup. It is. That's all we got. Another week in the books. (laughs) We'll take a break, and when we come back, we'll be joined by Yellow Jacket baseball coach Frank Pufal when the Eye of the Swarm continues right after this. Sports broadcasts on 91.3 FM are made possible in part by Barker's Island Inn of Superior. The Barker's Waterfront Grill offers breakfast, lunch, and dinner overlooking the harbor. More at BarkersIslandInn.com. Northern Wisconsin's Island Getaway. We're back on the Eye of the Swarm podcast. Uh, he's the Big Sound Matt Johnson. I'm John Garver, and we're joined by Yellow Jacket baseball coach Frank Pufal. And before you come at us with the, wait a second, baseball. Baseball's not starting until the spring. Well, kind of, sort of. You know, it is uh, technically baseball season, the non-traditional baseball season, and the Yellow Jackets getting close to wrapping up their fall ball season. How have things gone? Very well. Uh, I'm actually really happy. I knew... Bringing in as many first-year players as we did, that there was going to be some changes with uh, all the graduation that we had last year and guys that played a lot of innings for us. Um, but we've actually progressed faster than I expected. Um, there's still some things that we want to go over and fall. We've got a couple practices left here. But after yesterday or Sunday's games with UMD and our scrimmages, I was really, really happy with where we at. Probably the best I felt about the program overall since I've been here. So that was good. In your mind, like, what is the biggest... I've always been kind of an anti-fall ball guy, especially since I became responsible for scheduling student workers. <laughs> I've really been anti-fall ball. I've always kind of viewed it as more of a recruiting piece than anything because it gives you a chance to actually have part of a season instead of waiting seven months to get there. But for you as a coach, biggest thing that you try to pull out of each fall ball season, what would that be? I think there's a couple things. One, for us in the climate we're in, being able to use the space of an entire field where once we get to spring – we're confined to the field house, so there's things that we can't do in the field house that we can do in the fall ball. So for our first-year players, just exposing them to how we do double cuts, how we anticipate running the bases, those types of things that you can't simulate inside. So from a logistical standpoint, that would be one. From a big-picture standpoint, I think it's really kind of setting the tone for the season. You know, we have started last year, was the first year we did it, but we do a retreat um, where we go, we practice in the morning, and then we go – Uh, This year we went to Assembly Park. Last year we went to a Boy Scout camp. But just kind of laying the foundation, these are our expectations. This is how we handle ourselves. This is what we want the program to look like and what we want you to do moving forward. Being able to set that tone and lay that foundation I think is the biggest thing along with being able to do some of that stuff outside that we just can't get done in the spring before we start playing games. Is it more important, like you mentioned, you have a young team this year, a lot of new blood coming in. 
Does the fall ball season lend itself more important when you have that many newcomers, or is it the same every year? I don't know if it's more important, but it's definitely not the same. What we've focused on this year as opposed to last year, last year we were really big on competition and winning the end and, and doing those types of things that I think for that team, having so many returners, knowing that's kind of what we needed, an area we needed to work on. This year with so many first-year players, we've gone really back to fundamentals, working on base running. This is how we lead off. This is how we return on a, just on a back pick or anything like that and just really laying that foundation for guys so that they do can be consistent and can get up to speed on some of the things that we want to do in the spring as quickly as possible. So while I don't think any one year is more or less important, what we focus on and how we approach it is definitely going to be dictated by what our personnel is. That's a fair answer, I would say. I mean, I'm, I'm a big guy on team chemistry. That's something I always look for the teams that I cover, uh, and the teams I broadcast for, and uh, I I would think that a fall ball schedule, even if it is just practices, I mean, obviously in fall ball you also want to play a team from the area if you can, or set up, but like a, they used to set up like mini tournaments, I don't think they do that anymore, where you'd have like four teams come and play each other in a round robin kind of thing, and everybody would get some, you know, get their respective cuts in and, and get a chance to see the field. Um, but just from a standpoint of, especially with the new guys, you know, establishing the fact that you know, this is our team. This is how we run things. Um, and it gives the new guys a chance to really kind of get to know the guys a little bit better, too. I mean, it gives them a, a kind of a, a, a kind of a, a road into, shall we say, the baseball program beyond just being, well, now we got to wait until spring. And, you know, maybe we don't know each other as well as we might have if we did not do that, where we're waiting all the way through fall, all the way through winter. Now we're in the spring. And now, finally, we're starting to get to know each other a little bit. I feel like it, it does help as far as a group of guys, especially the new guys coming in, it kind of helps them kind of be acclimated and become more of a kind of, pardon the phrase, but kind of more like a family atmosphere then if they get to come in early and kind of go through some, at least some baseball paces with the, with the guys that are coming back. Yep, absolutely. And I think, you know, one thing that I've found just over the years here and at other programs is that spring trip is kind of really where that family or the dynamics of the team and the personality really gets solidified. But kind of to your point, I think that fall ball really helps set the tone and lays that foundation. The re- again, adding the retreat in like we have the last couple of years gives them some opportunities to do some things outside of just baseball uh, in a team environment. And kind of going off, you know, kind of setting the tone, when we played UMD on Sunday, we had three different shortstops. All th- we had three infielders play second base, third base, shortstop. And we've just kind of told this year's team that we're more athletic than we've been in the past and you're going to be an infielder and you're going to contribute wherever it might be. Whereas the year before, we knew who was going to be our second baseman and who was going to be our left fielder and who was going to play first. So we knew that. So that fall was different. But having the ability to have guys know that there's some opportunities for them and that it might be a shortstop or a second baseman or in the outfield, they have to communicate. We were forcing them to communicate when you're going over bunt coverages or first and third plays, and you have to know it from all angles. And we've even done stuff in the spring where we'll put a catcher at third base or shortstop or an outfielder so that they just have a different perspective and also kind of understand what their teammates are going through. So we, we spend a lot of time trying to build that, that team chemistry, um, whether it's in, even in our practice plans or outside with some of the other activities that we do. And, yeah, fall absolutely is a – opportune time because whether we win or lose it doesn't go on our spring record and it gives us some time to experiment with that type of stuff as well. In a fall game 
are you confined to legitimate game rules or do you kind of have a gentleman's agreement where we're going to re-enter this guy and we're going to move guys around? I mean, is it just more of a controlled scrimmage, I guess, as opposed to a full-blown game? Yeah, it's absolutely a controlled scrimmage. We had a catcher catch two innings and then come out and then get in that bat and then go get the guy he was going to come in with in the pen so they could work together and make that transition, which might be similar to something that they would see in the spring. Um, I had double-checked with Rents before we played UMD to make sure he was okay with it, but he did the same thing. And it very much is just – it is that controlled scrimmage and trying to just get guys' experience. I mean, it's with us, it's such a young team, when we played the alumni, that was a great thing the weekend before, but it's different than when you go play another team and kind of set it up like a doubleheader and you put up two different lineups and just – getting those first-year guys some experience of how college is a little bit different than the high school game. I also know that uh, a lot of the fall games are used as for situational stuff, too. I mean, you might play it straight up, but then the, a lot of times uh, they'll, they'll set it up so that, say, you play the first game maybe straight up, but then the next, if you play a doubleheader, for instance, you might set up situational stuff. We're going to put a guy on second base with less than two outs. We might put a guy on, on third base with two outs and, and then run it that way. What are we going to do in different circumstances? Stuff like that. Yep, and we've utilized practice that way where we'll do an inter-squad scrimmage, three innings, four innings we've thrown out, where, or just a BP scrimmage. Um, not so much when we've played outside competition, but definitely internally in our inter-squads. We've, because as I was saying, like that's something that we can't simulate inside. We can't put a guy in second base in the field house and hit a ball to the right center gap and figure out what we're going to do with it. Um, so we do utilize the fall to... Uh, expose guys to those situations and maybe how our defense is a little bit different than what they're used to or just so that they can work together and communicate together for the first time with a bunch of new players. Interesting. That's it. It's stuff I guess I didn't ever really think of because, again, I'm anti-fall ball. But <laughs> <laughs> it's it, it, it really does serve a much greater purpose, I guess, than than just – we're going to get guys out on the field so they have something to do and can get their season started instead of waiting until February to do it. Yeah, you know, and for us, it's kind of evolved. You know, Coach Marshall, I've been fortunate enough that the coaching staff has pretty much stayed the same uh, since I've been here and Coach Marshall beforehand, but I've he's been fortunate enough. We've taken him to a couple of national conventions and we learn new things. And fall ball has been a time that we've been able to implement some of those ideas and some of those coaching things that we've seen and just try to help refine what we're doing so that when we get to the spring, we can be, we only get two hours in the field house and it's a, a confined space. What can we make work? What can't we make work? And yeah, it, if it was up to me, and I'm sure you've heard me say this in staff meetings, you know, the more contact time I could get with the guys, the better. And, you know, having spent time in Nashville, I've always said I'll take a Nashville spring and a Wisconsin fall. That would be ideal for me. So because the weather is nice, like today is a beautiful day, we'll get outside this afternoon and just to be able to utilize the nice weather, the nice conditions, the whole field, we can't replicate it in the spring. Well, I suppose, I'm sorry, John, I, I suppose that taking the weather into account, really, fall ball plays that much more of an important role then because, you know, you have to get as many reps in as you can during the fall. Right. And if you have a, for instance, in the fall, a very wet fall like we have. Jeez, have a yeah, damp exactly. out there? Yeah, they exactly. had to negotiate that schedule a little <laughs> exactly. bit? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> you know, if you have to do that, then it, it, it makes getting those fall ball practices in a, that much more important because in the spring you never know what you're going to get. Right. Yep. And to your point, with it being as wet as it's been, we've done some adjusting. We actually, the NCAA gives you four or five weeks in the fall, well, as many as you want, but to utilize all the days you can, four or five weeks, 
Last year we went to five weeks to give some more space to have the guys use the field on their own and maybe some more time to kind of sink in some of the teaching points. Uh, and we were planning on doing that again this year, but with the rain, we actually shrank back down to four weeks, um, also with our early game in U.S. Bank this February. Um, it's going to allow us to have an extra week of practice in the spring to get ready for that. But going back down to four weeks in those 16 days, we ended up inside, at least one of them, which is always frustrating for me in the fall. I feel like the games and sport and the athletes and coaches, everything has changed so much, even over the last decade. Why won't the NCAA loosen that up and allow coaches to have more contact with their teams over the course of a year? I don't know. You Not know, that you have the answer yeah. to that, but... You know, it's, in some ways, it's it's frustrating for me from a, a pitcher's health standpoint, I think is the biggest one, to have our pitchers with us in the fall for four or five weeks, whatever it might be, and then to let them go for three months and to put them on a plan that's great, but with field house accessibility for all of our guys and those types of things, it's really hard for them to even stay on the plan that we would create for them. And then my concern is always arm injuries and health like that. Our positionals and our hitters, if you look at the stats from my time here, even before that, we hit pretty well because our environment is set up to hit pretty well. We have cages. We can get inside and do that. On the pitching standpoint, we kind of don't have those resources. So that would be my biggest push for the NCAA, even if we can't have contact with everybody. And it doesn't have to be huge. But when I was at UMD, uh, the Division II program, two hours a week. That's nice check-in point. That's not college, causing a college kid to have too many other conflicts in their day. You can, you can do two hours a week. Um, and just to monitor health and, is, and some development would be my argument for it. Um, I'm hoping with some of the studies that they're doing on arm health and arm injuries that you might see a push in that direction in the near future, um, especially as you look at things like driveline becoming so popular and guys wanting to use weighted baseballs. Without knowledge and without somebody kind of helping you monitor that system, there's some potential for injury risk there, and that's not that I have all the answers and not that you can prevent every injury risk even when you are monitoring it, but if we can minimize the risk, I would like to see that and like to be able to have our pitchers' development be more programmed and more monitored so that we could use it as a recruiting tool and not only to help us have more success on the field, but really for the development of our student-athletes. So what have we what have we learned through the fall ball season then? What have you discovered about your team that maybe you didn't know? Our first-year players are ahead of where I thought they were going to be. Uh, we were excited about who we had coming in. We felt really good with our recruiting class. Um, but even at that, after the other after the game Sunday and even after the alumni game, there are some guys who are going to play and contribute and, and help us. I think our you talk about team chemistry and you talk about team attitude, I think we're really making a great strides in – how we approach the game and that some of the first year guys are falling right in line with that. I look at kind of each year as a chapter and last year's chapter was huge and we beat everybody in the UMAC for the first time since we've joined the UMAC and we got to the conference championship game and in some ways we feel lighter. Like we went into that UMD game and whatever happened happened. We were pretty comfortable like we didn't have to compete with them equally we know they're a Division II program. They're a little bit bigger, stronger, faster. That's okay. Um, that's not why we're playing the game to necessarily win. But when we went out and competed with them, we're not going to panic over mistakes. We're going to make first-year mistakes because we have first-year players. But to watch the way that they handled any time there was a challenge or any time that maybe things didn't go exactly the way they wanted, they didn't flinch. They got right back in it. And that was not something that I expected. I 
expected them to play well, but that mentality was a, a really nice bonus. I'm very happy with where we're at. Yeah, well, I mean, I think you and I talked about this, too, at the beginning. I asked you what you thought of the first couple of practices, and you said the new guys are really going to push the returners, too. And that's, he said, I think that there were some eyes opened in that first couple of practices for fall ball where some of the returners said, whoa, these, these first years and these new guys, are they're serious, and these guys want to do well, and how is that going to push me? And I know you were excited about that, and, and I guess it, it's it's nice to hear that they were able to do that against UMD as well. And yeah, them. and I, you know, you mentioned you say the word serious, and I think they do a good job of taking things seriously, but it's not from a point of pressure or where there's not enjoyment. Like they they enjoy being out there, but they take their work seriously. And you know, I think when we go to Florida and we play as many games as you do, you might see an all freshman infield out there at one point in time, and that's that's exciting for the future and exciting for this year. Um, you mentioned the, you brought up the run of the championship game last year, and I, I guess I'd be remiss if I didn't expand on that a little bit. But, I mean, it's a level of success the program hasn't had. You didn't win it, but getting to that point, what does that do for the program? Like I kind of mentioned, I just think it things feel lighter. We know that we can go out and compete with anybody in the UMAC. We know... If you look at the Bethany game, the first game with Bethany in the tournament, it was a 4-2 game, and we lost. Well, that was a team we ended up playing again in the championship game. A 4-2 baseball game can go either way. It was two hits here for us would have made a difference, and then they kind of had a nice 0-2 where a guy was lucky to get the bat on the ball. But knowing that we beat them earlier, knowing that we could beat Scholastica on their home field, knowing that we can play with anybody in the UMAC, and actually having done it. It's one thing to believe it and think it, but actually having – the success in, in seeing it come to fruition, I think gives our returners a bunch of confidence. One of I had some first year player meetings, and one of our first year players asked me, What do I expect or what do I want from this team? And I would just want to get to the point where we show up at the ballpark and know we can win. And, and whether we do or we don't, that's going to happen in baseball. You don't win every game in baseball. It's it just with the way pitching goes, and you just don't expect to. You win 100 games in Major League Baseball, you've done a great year, you've still lost 62. So baseball. So you just. Yeah. I've always said, you, especially in the major league level, you're going to win a third, you're going to lose a yes. third. What do you do in the other third? Yeah, and that and that's exact. I mean, college baseball is is very similar that way. If you're playing similar competition and, and similar level, and I think being able to get to the conference championship game and being able to have that success and in tying the the school record for wins in a season, I think put our guys in a place where they don't have to chase those types of things anymore and they can just go out and play. Or at least that's, from a coaching standpoint, that's my hope. And that's kind of the message that we're trying to send this fall. That You guys can do it. You know you can do it. Let's just go play and let the chips fall where they are. Let's keep working hard. Let's develop these things. Because we got some stuff the first-year players need to work on and we want them to get better at. Um, fortunately, we're pretty senior-heavy on the mound or returner-heavy, um, upper-class-heavy, I guess would be a better way to put it. Um, we brought in a junior college transfer from DMAC who's going to uh, be in our rotation. That's going to solidify some of the arms that we lost. And you don't see them panicking. I think it's a lot easier having upper-class guys on the mound and first-year position players than vice versa because those upper-class guys are going to keep us in games and much easier overcome any first-year mistakes, whether it's at the plate or on the bases, or if the guy on the mound has that experience and can do that for us is a little different than if you have experienced guys in positions that don't have the ball in their hand all the time and they have to wait for it to come to them or have to wait for their turn at the plate. How many guys do you have to replace Braden Barr? Because he was the 
the, he was the guy who could do just about everything. You could put him in the infield. You could probably put him behind the plate, and he could catch if he needed him to. He was going to pound the mitt and eat up innings for you on the mound. How do you replace a guy like him? Well, we kept him on staff. So now he's part Fair. of our coaching staff. Okay, we- so he's still here. <laughs> Good answer. That's because he graduated and decided, I'm going to come back for two more years. <laughs> you know, and we had our, our family banquet Saturday night and our awards banquet. And, you know, not only could he do it on the field, but he set the bar academically. He was the first academic All-American in school history from the baseball program. Um, so he's just a great leader, a great example, leader by example. And, and it's awesome to have him still on our staff. You know, we've brought in some two-way guys that – are similar, and, and I think in the future we'll kind of fulfill that role uh, as being able to do be a dual threat. But, um, you know, you, you don't replace guys like Barr. You don't replace guys like Travis Miller. You don't replace guys like Matt Boyd. These guys that were in the heart of our order for three to four years that they were here. What we've done, and will look much different this spring, but, John, you saw our first year here. I like to steal bases. Never seen a coach like to run as much as you do. We're going to get back to that this year. And when we brought in this class, we went quick and we went. We're a little bit smaller. Christian Garcia is a big, strong first baseman that we brought in, um, but we're a little bit more athletic and we won't rely on the long ball as much. So rather than try to replace those guys, we've tried to bring in guys who complemented the guys that we had. Like Flanagan will still bat in the heart of our order. Um, you know, Corey Albertson, I don't know if you can say enough about what that guy can do on a baseball field, but he's still going to be in the heart of our order. Brandon Rolfe's played center field for three years. So rather than try to replace those guys, which I just don't think you can, we looked at what we had and tried to complement them to make the team as successful as it can be. And when this year's class graduates, we'll get back to probably bringing in some bigger guys that can, can hit the long ball to complement the, the more athletic kids we have in right now. You mentioned Corey, and I wanted to bring him up too. Where does he rank in terms of players that you've coached? Because it, it seems like anything you need him to do on a baseball diamond, that kid can do and then some. He's one of the best baseball players I've coached. There's no doubt about that. You know, I was fortunate when I was at UMD to coach some really good guys. Alex Wojciechowski, who was there, uh, was the Division II Player of the Year. Drafted uh, by the Phillies. Yep. yep. You know, so he... As far as guys I've coached, Woj was probably the best player I, I've seen. Corey's probably by far the best Division Three player, and Corey's uh, could play at the Division Two level. We've had some opportunities for him to go play with Division One guys in the summer. Um, he's going to go down in, in my mind, and I haven't been here and I haven't done all the history, but one of the best players that UWS has ever had, I would think, um, mm-hmm. just from what I know. Obviously, Gary Fritch right. was uh, played in the Brewers organization, so there's been. Some good players. And but still pitching today. Yep. yep. <laughs> I've heard the stories, yeah. Um, you know, and the thing about Corey is he, he's very humble. He doesn't like the accolades. The The more that we can kind of support him and, and keep him as understated as possible, which is really hard when you're, <laughs> you know, the only active player on the UMAC all-decade team and you're a former player of the year in the conference and you're an all-first-team, all-region guy and two-year all-region guy, like, Everyone knows who Corey is when we play. Um, but really, getting to know Corey over the years, it's seeing him off the field, watching him become a leader has been awesome because I think, especially that sophomore year when he did as well as he did, I think so many people looked to him to be a leader and that necessarily wasn't his comfort zone. And he's still not going to be the most outspoken, rah-rah, get-in-your-face kind of guy, but he knows when to speak up now and he knows when to stand back and he knows when to push guys. And watching that growth in him has been more exciting for me than so much as a player because when I came here as a freshman, you knew what Corey could do. And, I mean, he just 
physically is more gifted than a lot of guys that we have and a lot of guys we'll see. No, I he's one of the most athletic players I've ever seen. I've been around here a long time, and he's athletic. He can put him behind the plate, and he can throw guys out from his knees. If he had to put him on the mound, you know, he, he throws good and hard when you want him to pitch too, so he can do a little bit of everything. He's, well, we'll let a few more cats out of the bag. I said you might see an all-freshman infield in Florida. You might see Corey play all nine one game this spring, so. <laughs> That'd be fun. <laughs> I, if the situation allows for it, we're going to try to make I'll that make happen. sure we have a – a good photographic ready for that one when we have to put the story up on the website. <laughs> you know, it's interesting that you guys brought up, Corey, because I was going through my head and I was trying to think of each of the sports since I've been here a little over a decade. Not as long as you have, obviously, but if I had to pick a top three from each of the sports, who would they be? A mini Mount Rushmore? If you yeah, want. sort of like that. And Because I've covered basketball here basically since the start, since I've been here. And I have a clear kind of list of players on, the, on both men's and women's basketball that I would say, yes, yes, yes. When it came to baseball... I thought of a couple different guys that have had really good single seasons, like Tom Fairbanks had a fantastic year a couple of years ago, um, you know. And and Corey came in, but I, I I would have to honestly say that I don't think I've seen anybody better than Corey since right. since I've been here. I, um, I think his body of work, yeah, for an entire career, yeah. is as good as anybody who's ever played here. Tom Fairbanks had one heck of a year. Yeah, he had a fantastic his senior, senior year. year. Was incredible, but he doesn't have the body of work no. that Corey does. Yeah, I mean, Tom was an excellent athlete. I mean, really good. I remember when he was recruited here, uh, Eddie Morgan, who was the former coach, was telling me, this this kid is really good. And when Corey came in, I didn't know as much about him. But the first time you saw him go out there, I mean, he's he's a legitimate 6'2", 6'3", big, strong body, has good command strike zone and huge power. That was the first thing that stuck out to me. I mean, when he makes good contact, that ball flies. And it's fun to watch when you when you have a guy that's like that, that right. just has that natural – command the strike zone, and then when he really lights up a pitch, he really, I mean, he rips the cover off the ball when mm-hmm. he really gets one. And he had a couple one balls last year, I think, that you and I both were sitting there and like, <laughs> that's Corey Albertson Two years right in there. a row in the yeah. UMAC tournament over at Wade Stadium, I've been there and I'm like, whoa. <laughs> you know, that's going to clear the batter's eye. It, yeah. Those are legitimate shots. Oh, absolutely. You know, and he hit another one this fall in the alumni game. Like, yep, there's no, there's no question on Corey's power. Absolutely. Is there opportunities for him after to go play professionally? Potentially, I think so. I think it it start as a challenge. I don't I don't know. We'll see where the spring goes. We'll see. You know, a lot of that's out of my control. It's out of Corey's control. We'll do everything we can to get him in the best spot to take advantage of some of those opportunities. You know, having gone through the process a little bit with Woj and, and kind of seeing how that all played out, I think we'll know more in the spring, kind of where things are at. And Jimmy Heck, who was on that UMD team, he went and played indie ball. He started out in the Pecos League and then move to some other independent leagues, and that could potentially be a route for Corey. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of things that are yet to be determined, and again, so much of that's out of Corey's hands, you know, what other people think out of my hands, you know, and that was one of the biggest takeaways in some of the conversations I had with Woj was pay it, be mindful and be present with where you're at right now. Don't miss this opportunity to be a senior, and for Alex, it was participating in the NCAA regional and those types of things. Um, just do the best you can, and if it's going to happen, it's going to happen. And you know, we've had we've been reached out to a little bit on Corey, um, but it hasn't gotten quite to the point where, like it was with Alex, where we had multiple guys coming and checking out practices and things like that. So that may happen this spring. It, it may not, but um, there's also some other avenues. I mean, he, really, if he was seriously wanted to pursue it, I think there's overseas would always be an option for him. I don't know, knowing Corey as well as I do, I don't know how well 
he'd be excited about that or if he'd want to take that opportunity. But if he really wants to get paid to play ball, I think that opportunity would be out there. I'm just not sure what level that might be at. And Speaking of getting paid to play ball, fall ball, major leagues. Have you been paying attention to the playoffs at all? You know, I'm a terrible sports fan. Really? Yeah. That's rare for a coach to say that. I'd rather be involved. Like, I, I want to be a coach. I'd, I want to play. Like, I, I'm not a very good sports fan. It's one of the things I learned in Nashville when I was working in the music industry. I'm not a very good music worker. I'm a great music fan. Um, <laughs> I, like, I like watching the magic of music. I, like, uh, I don't like knowing what's going on behind the scenes. With sports, I'm the exact opposite. I, to sit and watch a game just to watch a game, I just don't enjoy it that much. I spend so much time away from my two boys and my wife and, and family recruiting with our practices, with our games. I watch enough baseball, sitting down on a, a Saturday or Monday. I would kind of like you, John, I wasn't in yesterday, but to watch baseball is probably not going to be at the top of my list. I'd put in a CD, turn in the radio, go to a concert, do, do anything music-related or family-related before I would watch professional. I can see that, actually. I can see no, that. No, I, I get yeah. it. You know, it, it, it kind of goes into what we were talking about even before we went on the air with your mom being a nurse and right, being yeah. around babies all day all long day and long. coming home to a baby. A baby. You know, yeah. I mean, my, my mother, she's a baker by trade, so she spent all those years working in a bakery. The last thing she wanted to do was come home and bake a loaf of banana bread or bake cookies because that's all she did all day long. So I, I, I understand that. Yeah, I'm a bit of the contrarian to that because I go home and the easiest thing for me to do is put a game on because I don't have to think about it. It's it's nothing I can just sit there and mindlessly watch a baseball game or a football game or the Simpsons or whatever. But, <laughs> you know, hey, they play baseball and hockey in the Simpsons too, right? <laughs> they do, yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit of the opposite that way. But I, I, I can totally see that. I also can kind of get that, though, because people who know me well, a lot of times if I'm not – if they don't know that I'm a sports broadcaster and that I cover games for both UMD and UW-Superior, they rarely will bring up sports with me, and I'll rarely say anything to, about sports to them. It's usually they have to bring it up with me. Usually when I'm, when I'm out and I'm just having one of those days where I don't have any games to broadcast or I'm not doing any, any pregame notes or interviews or anything like that, I am just trying to just be me, and so I just kind of go out and hang out. You know, we just talk about life. How's things going? What's new? Blah, blah, blah. Well, I went on this trip or, you know, my, right. you know, my, my kid had a birthday or something like that. I will go through a full day where I won't talk anything about sports unless it's brought up. And then, I'm gonna, then I will talk. But I'm not going to walk up and say, hey, did you guys see that game the other day? <laughs> so, you know, because when, you, when you're on this side of it, right. it becomes so routine that it becomes no longer just a, I'm passionate about it, obviously. I'm pi- passionate about sports. And I know, John, you are. And I know, Frank, you are as well. But when you're on the other side of it, when you're not a fan, when you're inside and you see the insides and, and, the, and what's going on behind the scenes, it doesn't feel the same. It's not the same as, wow, I'm just super excited about the game on Friday. You know, because right. you're, you go right into, okay, what do we got to do? I'm going to go to the barbershop today and talk to everybody about it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. You, you, for us, we, you go into, especially if you're broadcasting and it's, okay, I got to get interviews with this guy, this guy, and this guy, and this guy. And then I got to get my pregame notes. Then I got to make sure everything is working with the equipment. And then we got to make sure that everything with the board op is good. You know, right. I go right into that mode. And it's rare that I actually will go to a game or watch a game now where I'll watch it all the way through. Right. Because I'll see the score and I'll be like, okay, well, I'm done with this. <laughs> you know. Let's go see a movie. You know, yep. so I'll do something like that just to take a break mentally right. from it. And I don't know if that's kind of where you're going as well with that. or Yeah, I, I think so. And, you know, I try to keep up with it enough so I know what's going on. I know 
kind of the results. I know where the standings are. I know who the players are. But I do it more so so that I can talk to our guys on the team. Or if there's a highlight that I see or something comes across the Internet that I want to use as a teaching point, like since I've become the head coach here and have two boys, my mind is constantly in those worlds. Like I'll be reading a story to my two boys and I'll be like, oh, we need to I can share this with the guys like this is what we need. (laughs) We need to take this lesson from this and apply it to what we're doing. And I don't I'm know not, how many of you guys watched the episode of Paw Patrol last night, but, but if you want to talk about teamwork. <laughs> Chase and Rocky were really getting after it. <laughs> but it is like so much. And even, even when I'm trying to unwind and listen to music, I'll listen to a song that I'll want to bring. I, and you can ask guys. I have started team meetings uh, with the rehab song, Welcome Home. So speaking of Corey, I don't think he was too pumped on that song. He looked at me like I was an alien with two heads. But uh, – but I can't, I can't shut it off, and, I, and that's, I think it's okay as long as I can make sure I still find that balance and, you know, I'm able to not immerse, not go to a concert and just constantly think, how am I going to take this as a coach? But if something hits me that I can take as a coach, I, I think that's okay. Um, but, yeah, watching, watching sports, and, I, you know, I've watched a little, I'll watch NFL or, or something like that that I don't, isn't a sport that I know very much about from a technical standpoint, so then I can kind of mindlessly do it like you said, John. But to watch a baseball game, it's I'm thinking two batters ahead and a couple pitches ahead and that. And and to be honest, like Matt says, the I love doing it for our team. I love doing it for our school. But I don't love it enough that I want to go home and, and, and do it for somebody else or do it right. watching something yeah, else. Right. Got time for some rapid fire before you go? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. First one's always the same with everybody. If you're not a coach, what are you? You know, I've listened to all four podcasts. Thank you. I struggle with this question every time because there's a few <laughs> different directions. Like, I play along with the, with the other coaches. Um, you know, my journey to being a head coach is very different than the traditional way. I'd, for 10 years after I graduated college, I wasn't involved with coaching or, or sports. It was about 10 years. Um, so I had done some other things. I had mentioned I worked in the music business. I worked in the hospitality industry. Uh, I was a temp for a while, so I did some other crazy things there in Nashville. So for me, getting to being a coach is where I've wanted to be and kind of took a unique route there, so I don't know. Um, you know, if I wasn't getting paid to do it, I would probably still be coaching, whether it was Little League T-ball. You know, I started kind of as a high school coach. But um, if I got to choose, if I, if you said you can't coach at all and I got to choose, professional poker player. No kidding. I don't that's know if, an, I, that's an I don't know if I'm good enough. No, no kidding. Nor, Yeah. Wow. That's a good one. I never would have expected that. I didn't know you were big into the poker. Oh, this, you, this. Do you watch a little oh, that stuff when it's on TV? What, World, actually, I World suppose. Poker Tour? Uh, you know, I, I, I will uh, unwind to that. Absolutely. You no know, kidding. I was in Nashville when Moneymaker won the World Series of Poker, so that was kind of a big thing, and it was just really becoming popular. And we would we played a lot back then. I don't play nearly. I don't play much at all anymore, but. Is the one thing once I wasn't playing baseball anymore. Like I can go golf and it can be awful, and I don't really care. Or we can go play basketball and it. I'm not as competitive as I was in high school. Like I just, we're just going having fun. If you get me on a poker table, it's go time. Like we're. It is one of the only things that I found I enjoy as competitively as playing baseball or, or coaching baseball. And if I could figure out how to physically make it happen, like if I could be on a treadmill and do it, so I was getting some of the physical exertion that you get. <laughs> <clears throat> I might even think about switching professions then, but no, not really. Have you ever wow. played in a tournament? Yeah. Yep. Um, when I was living in Nashville, Tunica's not too far away, so we'd go down there every now and then and play. 
Um, not, no real big money tournaments or anything like that. We didn't have right. the, the bankroll to do it. But, yeah, we've been, my, some of my friends and I have been to some different casinos and played. I bet it would be fun to sit with him, have a few beers, and watch poker. Because that would be an interesting conversation, I think. Matt, I think it's always fun to sit down and have a few <laughs> beers. Like, I don't think you need the poker or whatever. Like, But, I mean, that would be <laughs> something that, because I'll be honest with you, I mean, I get poker. But I'm not somebody who religiously like will sit down and watch a, a, world, a world poker tournament event. Like right. I won't sit down and say I got to watch it because it's on NBS, NBCSN, or Fox or whatever. But I feel like if there's somebody who really knows it, that would be interesting. Well, it, you know, and I think it's interesting. One, I was terrible, absolutely terrible at poker growing up. Um, but we always played cards. We've mentioned my son, my oldest boy is he'll turn five next month he loves to play cribbage right now and he's he's just kind of learning so cards have always been in my family but uh, i was never very good at poker and then somehow the more and more i got into it but i just really enjoyed it i think there's a lot of parallels to baseball because if you're playing especially a hold'em tournament which is probably my favorite game like you fold and you sit there and you wait just like you have sometimes have to go in the dugout and wait for eight other guys to bat before you get your next turn to bat so when you get in that hand, now you got to be locked in. You better have been paying attention all around. So, I, again, aside from the physical, I think mentally it's a very similar in a lot of ways on how, what your strategy is. When am I going to bluff? When am I not going to bluff? When am I going to steal 10 bases in a game if we can? Right. <laughs> well, when are you uh, also thinking about, you know, what am I going to do if this card comes up? You're, you're playing the odds well, in your head. Absolutely. You know, especially if you're talking about uh, a hold'em game, like it is very much, and I always like math growing up, so it did really – a, a limit game especially is very much the percentages like you can the pot odds to it and, and again we actually bring that to our guys in baseball like if there's no outs and a runner on first what are the percentage that we're going to score how many runs okay so what's the risk reward on trying to steal second versus hit and run and those types of things so maybe it's the way i think about the games or the similarities that way but yeah I, if i could play more poker tournaments and maybe when the boys get a little bit older that that's something i'll do but oh. yeah that is that, interesting. That I did is, not know that. I did not either. That is a great answer. Great answer. Way better than Joe saying you want to be a farmer. <laughs> right. Right. Or uh, uh, who, who else had a good one? That was um, somebody else had a, well, I mean, Eb, history teacher, right. of course, which is what he does. Right. But, I mean, yeah, that's the most, I think. I've had the luxury of being the fifth guest, and like I said, I listen to the other ones and play along. So That's good. I like yeah, that's that. a good one. That's a good one. All right. So you've mentioned more than once now music, whether it was working in the industry or your enjoyment of it. Dead or Alive, one concert. Who is it? That I have seen, that I haven't seen. That you like, want to see. That I want to see. Dead or Alive, one show. I'll even I, give you an opener and a headliner. Well, if Eric Church could open for the original Skinner, that would be the way to go. Okay. Um, when I initially went to school in Nashville, moved to Nashville, I wanted to see Garth Brooks. George Strait and Dwight Yoakam. I've seen Garth Brooks and George Strait. I haven't seen Dwight. Um, he'd be on my list of people I want to see. Um, yeah. Zach Brown Band, I've seen several times. Love them. What about the original Skinnerd? Ronnie Van, just to be, I've seen Skinnerd. My wife and I are actually backstage for a Skinnerd show. Okay. Which is a story for off air sometime. Excellent. <laughs> um, Naturally. But yeah, growing up, just in high school, I was, you know, very eclectic. Uh, music in our house. My dad was a huge Frank Zappa fan. That's part of where my name comes from. Um, country was big in our house. My mom was Simon and Garfunkel, so we were all over the map. 
But um, Skinner was something that I was gravitated to, and just old watching old videos of Ronnie singing, I, to be able to see that live would be awesome. Frank Zappa, his song Montana is one of my favorite songs ever. I don't even know if I know that oh one. Oh my gosh, it's hilarious. You know, by... I mean, the, the, the drug influence is definitely present in that. It's off the album Overnight Sensation. Yep. And uh, the drug influence is definitely present when the first line is, I might be moving to Montana soon to raise me up a crop of dental floss. That says everything you need to know. <laughs> but there are some absolutely incredibly funny lyrics in that song. Well, you know, we got uh, my dad, when he was home with me when I was little, we'd listen to Zappa. And when my mom came home one day and I was uh, singing Don't Eat the Yellow Snow, that's when, uh, <laughs> that's when Zappa got put on hold for a few years. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's outstanding. That's Where did the, uh, the love of baseball come from? It's a, a family thing as okay. well. You know, there was... Being from Ashland, there was a time in that town around the turn of the 19th century, 1900s, I'm not sure. Um, but at that time, there was an all Poofall baseball team in the town. The Fighting Poofalls. Yeah, I don't think that was their name, but yep, very much so. And, you know, my uncle uh, played at the University of Arkansas. Uh, my dad played in college. My uncle still runs the town ball team. My other uncle coached high school. My cousin currently coaches up in... Swift Current in the college summer league, so I've helped some players, helped him find some players. And, you know, you talked about family earlier. I, I think it's a very family game, and the more that I'm around it, the more I realize how hard the game can be if you don't start at a young age to hit a round ball with a round bat is not an easy thing to do. And if you get introduced to it at 8 or 9 years old and you're facing someone who's 12 that's physically stronger than you, it's probably not a real fun game if you've never played before. That's interesting too, Frank, because uh, people who know my background know I started in Ashland. So I'm familiar with the Poofall family and their baseball uh, heritage. Um, and the team I believe you're referring to is the Ashland Merchants that are part of the Upper 13. Yeah, that's, yeah. Who, that's who my uncle coaches now. And uh, Roger Plakta, former softball coach here, actually went and played with those guys for a while um, back in the day. And um, yeah, that's a different incarnation of the team from when it was an all Poofall team. My uncle who had been at the University of Arkansas, got injured in an accident. He's yep. in a wheelchair, and that's kind of when they started the merchant so he could kind of stay involved with the game. And yep, he's yeah, a good man. Yep, so He's a very good man. 43 years later, they're still going. They were at the WBA state tournament this year for the first time in a while. So, oh, wow, that's cool. Yeah. I feel like, see, like, and I got a chance to go to watch a lot of those games during the summer because there wasn't a lot else going on at the newspaper, and they would say, go cover the merchants. So I'd go, and I, you know, I got a chance to know Ed pretty well, and, and Terry, and the rest of the Poofall clan. I didn't get a chance to meet you until later. Well, that was probably during <laughs> when I was down in Nashville. You know, I spent a little over a decade in Nashville, both in school and, and afterwards. So my brother was probably on the team at that point, I would think. And yeah, there were at least three or four different Poofalls that were involved mm-hmm. at that point. So sounds right. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's interesting listening to, to your perspective on it, just because I I had a chance to just kind of take it in for a few years. I mean, it's not I don't know the Poofall you know family history as well, obviously, as you do, having grown up in it. But um, definitely right away figured that they were a baseball family. So definitely part of the, the Poofall family DNA, I guess, the sport of baseball is. With that being said, if you have to pick another sport to master, what would it be? Probably golf. I loved golf growing up. Uh, my grandfather on my mom's side was a big golfer. Um, and interestingly enough, I think I would have been a better golfer than a baseball player, but I liked at that time, and probably still today, I like the team aspect of baseball um, more so than golf, but probably golf. Okay. Last one. What's Frank's favorite Halloween costume of all time? 
that I have done or that anyone has done? That you have. Well, I've done Roy Hobbs a few times. My first year here, uh, when I was firstly hired, I came in with the Cubs uniform on as Ryan Sandberg. I remember that. Uh, I have one plan for this year that I want to do that I'm not going to let out until I show up, which, you know, and this is also interesting. I never really liked Halloween. Like, I didn't, I don't like being scared. People love scary movies. That's not an emotion or a feeling that I enjoy. Um, But as I got older, I appreciated some different things about Halloween. Maybe, and going back to when I was a kid, when I was in kindergarten, my mom took all this time and made this Pac-Man suit. And I had this yellow, like she sewed it all together, and I was Pac-Man, and she made these little white pillows that were the power pellets that I... <laughs> That's awesome. That's fantastic. Yeah. So. Right on. Fantastic. Good, great Pac-Man reference. <laughs> I told you. I, That's a first for the podcast, too. Yeah, we're a group of 80s kids here. I mean, to be perfectly honest. Yeah. I mean, well, so that's... I wasted plenty of hours playing Pac-Man. My in-laws live in Sparta, so we'll take the boys down to Sparta in, in Eau Claire... There's a McDonald's that has a free Pac-Man game and four people can play, so our whole family can play. So every time on the way to Sparta, the boys are hollering for, we got to go to the old McDonald's with the Pac-Man. we got to go to the old McDonald's (laughs) with the Pac-Man. That's fantastic. When my dad, so my dad got uh, injured. He worked on the railroad and got hurt and became a paraplegic. One of the first things he did before on his, when he was recovering is we took construction paper and we created a board Pac-Man game um, and we would roll dice, and you would hide the ghosts and everything. So, yeah, there's a little, I don't know, I was just thinking about it. Since we Pac-Man. That's good stuff. Yeah. This was a good round. It was a good round. This was, a, was very a very good round. round. He's Frank Pufal, the Yellow Jacket head baseball coach. Thanks for coming in and joining us today. Thank you so much. We'll take a break. We'll come back with more of the Eye of the Swarm podcast right after this. Sports broadcasts on 91.3 FM are made possible in part by Donji's East End Tavern, located in the heart of Superior's East End and a proud sponsor of Yellow Jacket Athletics. Ken Mertz and Mertz Rookie Insurance, a full-service agency with more than 35 years of experience offering all lines of personal and commercial insurance. 866-378-4936, online at MertzRookieInsurance.com. Burnix, local distributors of Pepsi and proud supporters of UW-Superior. And by Northwest Outlet, family-owned and operated for more than 60 years, offering a full line of sporting goods, footwear, clothing, and outerwear. 1814 Belknap and Superior or at northwestoutlet.com. We're back with the final segment of the Eye of the Swarm and another one of these strange weeks where we've only got Two games at home. Yeah. And they, they both, it falls tomorrow, so Wednesday. <laughs> right. So when this thing actually goes live, it'll be yesterday. But it, it comes up on Wednesday, and it's weird. It's a 1 o'clock men's soccer game, a 3.30 women's soccer game, and that is it until the following Tuesday at home. Yeah, yeah, and, but uh, that doesn't stop anybody from being super busy this week. Yep. Volleyball's got five matches between now and we next talk. So five matches. We'll talk about that in a second. Yeah, the men playing at 1 p.m. against North Central. They'll come back and play UMAC action there. 1 p.m. against the Rams, and then the women will follow up at 3.30. That's what's coming up for those two teams here. Those teams also, by the way, will be on the road this week on Saturday at Bethany Lutheran for another doubleheader, the men again at 1 p.m. and the women again at 3.30. So a couple of conference doubleheaders for them. Women's volleyball, they are the busy bees of the week. Pun intended? Pun intended. Okay. Tonight, actually, this Tuesday, as we talk about this, they're on their way to Northland. 
take on the Lumberjills tonight at 7 p.m. in a UMAC conference match. After that, they've got four coming up this coming weekend in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. They're taking on St. Norbert at 5.30 p.m. and then Finlandia at 7.30 p.m. on Friday. Then on Saturday, they'll be taking on the host Titans, UW Oshkosh, at 9.30 a.m., so bright and early. And then two hours later, they'll be taking on Luther at 11.30 a.m. That's all part of the 2019 Marty Peterson Invitational held at the Colf Sports Center in Oshkosh. That's one of the bigger D3 venues you'll ever see. That place is huge. Yep. If you've ever been in there, that place seats about 8,000 people. Yeah, it's a big one. Yeah, so it's that's what's one. up for them. Men's and women's golf, of course, have completed their schedules, so we don't have to worry about them. And men's and women's cross country, they are off this week. We talked about the fact that they like to schedule every other week, so this is one of their off weeks. Yep. Next for them, they're at the College Town Sports in Invitational. Oshkosh. Yep, in Oshkosh. At the Lake Breeze Golf Club in Winnicottie, Wisconsin. The College Town Sports Invitational. They go to that just about every just year. Just about every year, yeah. yeah. Men's race will be at 10.30 a.m. The men's race at 11.20. He goes to that one a lot because you see the regional end up at that course. Okay. So I think he likes to get down there whenever possible in case the regional is there. Then it gives them something they can look at. Yeah. You know, so, get used to. So that's what's on tap this week. It's going to be a busy week. We'll have a lot of volleyball to talk about next week. We will have a lot of volleyball, and hopefully I'm going to try to get Coach Diedrich on with us next week. So that'll well, be our, our next guest if we can somehow sandwich a conversation in around all those volleyball matches. Well, especially the fact that I've got to broadcast with them next Wednesday against St. Scholastica, who they seem determined to play five sets with every time they Every play single them. time. <laughs> yeah. So hopefully we'll get her on the airwaves sooner rather than later. Right. So that'll, that'll do it for this episode of Eye of the Swarm. For our engineer, Elliot Swear and the Big Sound, Matt Johnson, this is John Garver saying thank you for tuning us in. You've been listening to the Eye of the Swarm.